Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge to you, the listener, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my lovely co-host, Chad Cooper. This is Season 3, Episode 6, the finale of our Monsters Are Universal season. This time around, we're going to the Moors, with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins in a largely bear-related discussion of the film The Wolfman. But enough out of me. Thanks everyone for listening this season, and here's Chad to tell you all about The Wolfman. The Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind is an educational home for students ranging from kindergarten through the 12th grade. This residential school is located one mile from downtown Colorado Springs, Colorado. The school was originally founded by Jonathan R. Kennedy in 1874 as the Colorado Institute for the Education of Mutes. Kennedy established the school with $5,000 from the territorial legislature two years prior to Colorado becoming a state. The school was established in a rented house with just seven students, and three of these students were Kennedy's own children. One of his children, Emma, who was both deaf and mute, later married another student of the school, Frank H. Cheney, who also could not hear or speak. Emma and Frank fell in love, married, and had a son. His name? Lon Cheney. Unlike his parents, Lon Chaney could both hear and speak and communicated with his parents through a necessary learned skill of pantomime. This ability to communicate without words combined with a love of acting served Chaney well as he ultimately made his way to the vaudeville stage by his 16th birthday. By the age of 20, Lon Chaney had made his way to Hollywood where he took small bit parts in movies and picked up work in the theater. At 22 years old, Chaney met a 16-year-old singer, Cleva Creighton, ultimately leading to a marriage of the two in 1905. One year later, the two had a son named Creighton Tull Chaney. However, their marriage was a troubled one, and in 1913, Cleva went to visit Lon, who was managing a show at the Majestic Theater in Los Angeles. Upon her arrival, Cleva attempted suicide by swallowing mercuric chloride, a common treatment for syphilis, and a substance that was also known to have an annoying side effect of poisoning people to death. Fortunately, Cleva's suicide attempt failed. Unfortunately, guzzling mercuric chloride does a number on the pipes, and Cleva's career as a singer came to a stop. Divorce followed along with a dash of scandal surrounding the suicide attempt, and this forced Cheney out of theater work, leading him to find more opportunities in the film industry. Cheney eventually remarried Hazel Hastings, and the two gained custody of Cheney's then 10-year-old son, Creighton, who had reportedly been living in boarding houses since the divorce of his parents. Cheney eventually became a contract worker for Universal Studios and slowly gained notoriety with his skill as a makeup artist. During this time, Cheney began to get more substantial roles in his films through his growing network of industry contacts. During his time with Universal Studios, Cheney appeared in multiple movies, and his first big role was in the 1919 film The Miracle Man, where Cheney played a contortionist con man known as The Frog. 
In the same year, Cheney worked with director Todd Browning on the first of ten films that the two would make over the next ten years. Browning would go on to direct Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, and the film Freaks, a movie that features real carnival sideshow performers and people with physical disabilities. Cheney's career in Hollywood took off as his skills as a makeup artist really gave him an advantage over his fellow actors, actually leading to him playing multiple roles in a single film. Through dedication, tenacity, skill, and some good luck, Cheney landed the role of Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923 and was also cast as the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera in 1925. Cheney left Universal Studios for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in 1925, where he had a successful career for almost five years. However, in the winter of 1929, Cheney developed pneumonia during the filming of a movie. He was later diagnosed with bronchial lung cancer that was worsened when artificial snow made from cornflakes lodged in his throat while filming a scene for a movie. This led to a serious infection, and Cheney ultimately died of a throat hemorrhage in 1930 at the age of 47. Lon Chaney's influence on the history of Hollywood is unmistakable. His physical transformations through makeup artistry was groundbreaking, and his roles in The Hunchback and Phantom, among others, showed that the public had a real interest in more macabre film fare and opened the door for more frightening movies. Prior to his death, it was reported that Cheney was in negotiations to play Dracula for Universal Studios, but contract negotiations and, well, his being dead made that pretty much a showstopper. Universal continued to churn out classic monster movies, including Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, and Bride of Frankenstein. There were some lesser-known horror films that were released, along with a string of sequels based on the success of their first wave of films. But sequels can only get you so far. So that's when you turn to remakes. In 1935, Universal made a not-so-successful movie called Werewolf of London. This looked to be ripe for a new interpretation, but to launch a remake, you need a big star to put asses in the seats to make it a guaranteed success. You know, a real Tom Cruise type. And based on that premise, studio executives knew just the man for the job. Boys, get me Creighton Tull Chaney. Creighton Tolchaney spent the majority of his early life avoiding his father's very famous shadow. Creighton's famous father discouraged his son from following in his footsteps. Creighton instead attended business school and ended up working for a plumbing company. He married the daughter of his boss, and the two of them had a couple of sons. But after the death of his father, Creighton began acting. He paid his dues with bit parts for various studios, including stunt work and some acting, RKO Studios eventually gave Creighton a lead role in a serial, The Last Frontier, in 1932, which led to bigger roles. But in 1935, Creighton Chaney made The Marriage Bargain, which would be the last film that he made under his birth name. After that, he would be billed as Lon Chaney Jr. Chaney Jr. made numerous movies for various studios, including Universal, Republic, 20th Century Fox. And Universal actually did a screen test of Chaney Jr. to star as Quasimodo in a remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, reprising one of his dead father's iconic performances. It's kind of hard to stand in someone's shadow when you're trying to fill their shoes. Chaney Jr. didn't land that role, but the creative minds at Universal had another remake idea in mind, that of The Wolfman. The Wolfman was released in 1941 and was produced and directed 
by George Wagner, a man who had had great experience during the wave of horror films in the 1930s. Upon release, the movie's poster featured a frightening image of the wolfman himself looming over a blonde-haired woman in a red dress with her cleavage exposed and her eyes closed. The poster also featured some of the biggest names in Hollywood horror cinema starring in this terrifying feature film. This movie's got every actor you could want in a horror flick. We got the invisible man himself, Claude Rains. Dracula's here. Bella Lugosi. And the piece de resistance as the Wolfman himself, none other than Lon Chaney. That's right. The top brass at Universal Studios thought that Lon Chaney Jr.'s name was too long. It was too difficult to remember. That's too many syllables. So instead, they decided to just refer to him as Lon Chaney, you know, just to keep things short, simple, and thoroughly confusing. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, I will respectfully refer to him as Chaney Jr. going forward. In The Wolfman, Chaney Jr. played Lawrence Larry Talbot. Chaney Jr. would go on to reprise this role four times, only three of which did he undergo the on-screen transformation from man to wolf. In the original movie, the transformation was done using dissolves as makeup was added. The latter transformations of Chaney from man into wolf was a massive undertaking, reportedly lasting up to 10 hours to film just for a few seconds of screen time. It should also be noted that in the original Wolfman, it is not the full moon that makes him full-on wolf out. In the movie, there's a poem that's read which states that it happens when the wolfbane blooms in autumn. A poem? Wolfbane blooms? Autumn? What kind of tutti-frutti monster movie are we making here, people? Once the studio, inevitably, got around to cranking out sequels, they changed the poem to nix that wolfbane blooming autumn stuff, and they replaced it with language about the full moon. This gave them a lot more freedom to wolf out, you know, outside of that two-week wolfbane blossom season in the fall. The original film was not a huge box office success, which may have just been a reflection of monster movie fatigue. Despite it not being a huge blockbuster, it did establish the cinematic mythology of werewolves, which in turn produced numerous interpretations and sequels over the following decades. In the early days, there were comedy pairings with Abbott and Costello. There was I Was a Teenage Werewolf, starring Pa Ingalls himself, Michael Landon. Another Michael, Michael J. Fox, played a basketball-playing, conversion-van-surfing werewolf in the 1980s comedy Teen Wolf. Gremlins director Joe Dante brought us 1981's The Howling, starring Dee Wallace, or as most people know her, hey, that's the mom from E.T. That same year, we got a double dose of Wolfman magic with Albert Finney, Gregory Hines, and Edward James Olmos in Wolfen. Now, if that lineup doesn't make you want to see Wolfen, how about this? One account of Wolfen from Michael Keaton's character in the wholly unrelated film The Dream Team is that it's, quote, a movie about those gigantic wolves that come out at night, they eat people and rip their guts open, and man, they kind of got shit hanging out of their mouths and stuff, and they would live for an hour or so, just say they're twitching and stuff, and they filmed it right here because this is exactly where it happened. It's a true story. End quote. Does that make you want to see Wolfen? No? Did I mention that Tom Waits shows up as an uncredited drunken bar owner? <laughs> There's no need to thank me. I'm just doing my job. John Landis successfully orchestrated a horror and comedy pairing in his iconic An American Werewolf in London. We'll pause here for a moment of silence to reflect on the brilliance of this masterpiece. 
And it goes without saying that any list of werewolf movies is incomplete without mentioning the greatest werewolf movie of all time, starring one of the greatest actors of all time in one of the greatest cinematic performances of all time. I'm referring, obviously, of course, to Gary Busey as Uncle Red in Stephen King's Silver Bullet. If this movie doesn't prove that the Academy Awards are rigged, well, then I don't know what does. But all of these werewolf movies, remakes, interpretations, and performances pick and choose from the core mythology to lay the foundation of their own unique narratives. None of them ever attempted to tell a story true to the original source material. That is, until Joe Johnson arrived. Johnson began his career working on miniature optical effects for 1978's Battlestar Galactica. He went on to work as a concept artist and effects technician on the original Star Wars movie, which led to work on both of that film's sequels and eventually Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Now, it makes sense that a man who had extensive experience in making small things look big and big things look small would find directorial success in the 1989 hit Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Johnson followed up the success of this family-friendly film with another one two years later with The Rocketeer, and in 1994, he directed The Pagemaster. Neither of these films did too well, but the special effects expert came back strong when he directed Jumanji, starring Robin Williams. Johnson dropped the special effects trappings and next helmed October Sky, which featured Jake Gyllenhaal as a kid dreaming of being a NASA scientist against the demands of his father, because... No son of mine's gonna be a rocket scientist. In this house, we're brain surgeons. Now get up to your room and start reading your anatomy book. Johnson then took over for his friend Steven Spielberg in the director's chair for Jurassic Park 3. He next made a movie called Hidalgo that most people don't really remember, and then six years, nothing. That is until, in 2010, Johnson came back. Oh, this is it. With a remake. That's right. Of the 1941 horror classic, here we go, The Wolfman. This movie was shot in England and starred Benicio Del Toro as Lawrence Talbot, The Wolfman. At this point in his career, Del Toro had a wide range of critically acclaimed performances from Finster in The Usual Suspects to Hunter S. Thompson's sidekick Dr. Gonzo in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas to his portrayal of Che Guevara in the two-part film series Che. Famed special effects artist Rick Baker, who did the special effects in An American Werewolf in London, returned for the remake of The Wolfman. Baker reportedly said that Benicio Del Toro's transformation into the Wolfman was not that difficult because Del Toro is a naturally hairy man. Essentially, they just had to take a hairy man and make him more hairy with big teeth. Now, this wasn't a totally new experience for Del Toro as he played Duke, the dog-faced boy, in 1988's Big Top Pee-wee, the sequel to Pee-wee Herman's first movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Anthony Hopkins plays Del Toro's estranged father, Sir John Talbot. Actress Emily Blunt plays Gwen, the female lead. And The Matrix's Agent Smith, or as his family knows him, Hugo Weaving, shows up to round out the cast. Oingo Boingo frontman Danny Elfman whipped up the music, but his score was rejected as it didn't match the tone of the reshoots of the film. So they brought in Paul Haslinger to replace him. But that didn't work out, so they went back to Danny Elfman's original, more gothic score. Wait a minute, wait. Hey, Danny Elfman did the score for Big Top Pee-wee, so he's the only film composer who has scored two movies where Bernicio del Toro plays a half-man, half-dog creature. You can share that at your workplace water cooler or around the family dinner table. Show people that you know a thing or two. The movie was originally scheduled to hit the big screen in 2007, but there were some challenges getting a director on board. 
Joe Johnson reportedly signed on just three weeks prior to the start of principal photography. Such a late start required the use of more computer-animated effects for the werewolf over more time-consuming traditional makeup effects. The film was shot in 2008, and the release date was pushed out to February 2009. Ooh, that's not good. Then it got pushed back to November of the same year. Uh-oh. Then it was finally released on February 12, 2010. Oh, boy. The movie came out, and it was second at the box office, right behind the ensemble romantic comedy, Valentine's Day. The movie took in around $31 million at the box office during its opening weekend, $8 million more than Avatar, which was starting its third month in theaters. During a 2011 speech at the Savannah Film Festival, Ron Meyer, the president and chief operating officer of Universal Studios, said that the movie was one of the two worst films that Universal had ever made. The other one he cited, Babe, Pig in the City. Makes you wonder how he really felt. The movie was generally panned by critics. Roger Ebert praised the film's setting and use of natural light, which provided the gothic atmosphere one would expect of a traditional remake of a horror classic. However, Ebert noted, the film has one flaw, and faithful readers will not be surprised to find it involves CGI special effects. No doubt there are whole scenes done well in CGI that I don't even spot them, but when the werewolf bounds through the forest, he does so with so much speed. The werewolf moves so lightly, here he almost cries out, Look, I'm animated! And perhaps that is the curse of remaking a horror classic of a film from a bygone era while leveraging new technology and fancified forms of filmmaking. But how about the movie? Is it really a dog of a tale? Is there anything worth liking about this film? Wolf, you recommend it to your friends? Why is my favorite book hilarious Halloween jokes and puns for kids? Well, there's just one way to answer these questions. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Episode 6, 2010's The Wolfman. Oh, oh, oh! Oh, Let me get my notes for this fucking thrilling piece of cinema. <laughs> this movie's so fucking boring. An hour 42 is the runtime on this thing. God. It feels like a goddamn eternity. Let's, I w- hold on. Hold, hold, hold the thoughts. Right. Hold on. Hold on. You ready? And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I'm Chad Cooper along with my lovely, talented, and beautiful co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. hey So, Bo. That's how I do it now. <laughs> We have come to the end of yet another season. We are wrapping things up with 2010's The Wolf, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Break it up, man. (laughs) Joke's over, son. What you doing, man? I would pay to see that movie over this one. Come on, son. What are you doing turning into a wolf? (laughs) I can't even get through this song. There's no way I'm getting through this without just consistently referring to the film as the wolf man what you doing with that deer man <laughs> say it. come on little wolf man I'm sorry i could do that for the next two hours and be perfectly content. <laughs> i got a feeling you might let's make this happen all right so our movie starts off and we get the universal logo and the way that it's set up it, it kind of looks like a full moon and then we get a voiceover of the poem that is a, a callback to the original film where we hear the line even a man who is pure of heart 
and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. I think I have committed to memory more so than close relatives' birthdays and anniversaries and whatnot. I could whip that out anytime. You're talking about the poem. I was talking about my penis, Chad. No, uh, oh yeah, of course that poem. Like that's one of those things that if you're a horror nerd like myself, that is the stuff of life. That is manna from the gods. It's so perfect and creepy and succinct and it's all you need to know about wolfmans does that just mean that anybody can become a werewolf yeah well like all right here's my my favorite way to become a werewolf because i tried all of these as a kid is drinking water that has collected in a wolf's print like out in the woods or something you did this look i had dogs bite me i drank <laughs> out of wolf prints i had like my hairy turkish neighbor give me a nip on the shoulder one time i put a tiny homemade doghouse on my head and went outside in a full moon and pulled together some buddies that helped me solve mysteries and then i took the small dog house off my head to see if i would turn into a werewolf this is a reference to a 1980s animated series called Fang Face. <laughs> yeah. ooh, ooh. I watched uh, almost an entire episode of Fang Face in the lead up to this episode tonight. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. Our movie begins and we get a shot of the full moon and it's creepy nighttime woods. And we see a mystery man walking with a lantern at night and we get a font overlay letting us know that we are in Blackmore, England, 1891. And Blackmore, England, that sounds spooky. It's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, it's really only bested by, like, Creepvale, Spookington. Deathburg is bad. Scary Hollow. Um, I'm thinking maybe Mara blah, 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 go. <laughs> Did you like that one? I did that one for you. I did. I had a little coffee in my mouth uh, when you said it. it. Almost came out my nose. Yeah, I had a note there about that, too. Of like, hey, hey uh, don't live in a place called Blackmore. Just don't. When they're like, hey, we've got a house for sale. Where is it? Blackmore. You can go fuck yourself. <laughs> Our lone man is demanding that someone or something show himself. And he says, I know you're out there. And this is followed by a little misdirection in the form of a, a jump scare from a flock of birds flying up out of the dark. And then bam, this guy is gutted by the wolf man we are two minutes and 28 seconds into this movie and we have got a werewolf attack we've got a victim yeah. we've got blood we've got movie titles so far so good as far as i'm concerned and by the way this is the best like four minutes of the movie <laughs> It is a really good opening to a horror film, especially a movie like this that is tonally so subdued. I don't know that it's necessarily the best four minutes of the movie. I think there are scenes later with Anthony Hopkins being the unbelievably good actor that he is. That is a really, really good cinema. But as far as a horror movie goes, yeah, this is pretty solid uh, as an opening. And then it's downhill from there. Yeah, but for a movie called The Wolfman... It's you, you can't stop doing it once you start. I know. I know it's like Pringles. It's it, it, you've got the poem. You've got England, 1891. You've got a place called Blackmore. You've got a guy with one of them like old timey lanterns. And then you've got a vicious werewolf attack that leads to blood dripping off claws. And then the title, the wolf man. And you're like, God damn it. This might be good. Even watching it again, I was like, did I remember this wrong? Is this movie okay? And then the rest of the movie happens. It's like, oh no, this is barely watchable. <laughs> <laughs> when we see the opening uh, title 
of the Wolfman. It's etched in stone and blood trickles down the font or I, I don't know, the, the layout of the title. And it almost looks like this horror movie, Midnight Madness, double creature feature. And as I noted, the tone of this movie really shifts around a lot. Overall, the movie really feels like this PBS 19th century examination of British class culture. But there are shifts where the special effects and the production quality takes you out of that underlying mood. And it just sort of shifts into Wolfnado. Not so much Wolfnado, but a slasher film. The special effects, I think, really become very evident. And I noted this in the opening where Roger Ebert commented on the fluidity of the the Wolfman's movements, but it happens in more subtle ways that really feels out of place with the overall either tone or cinematography or the costumes, the settings. It's just, I don't know, it, it feels a bit out of place, but we'll get, we'll get more and more into that. We now get some voiceover from Gwen Conleaf, who is played by Emily Blunt, and I like Emily Blunt. And in her voiceover, she's reading a letter to Lawrence Talbot, who is played by, as noted earlier, Benicio Del Toro. In the movie, Gwen has been engaged to Lawrence's brother, Ben, who has gone missing because, as we just saw, he was werewolf to death out in the woods. Is that technically what they put on the death certificate? Yes, he was werewolf to death by a wolf, man. Do you think that, as a joke, the medical examiner that comes behind him puts below it their wolf, their castle? I think there's a lot of opportunities for dog puns and wolf puns in this town as people are getting killed. And I'll be happy to loan them uh, my book of hilarious Halloween puns and jokes for, yeah. for children. I, I agree with you. I like Emily Blunt uh, just fine. But I don't understand what in the hell this character is doing in this movie. She's digging for gold. That's what she's doing, man. <laughs> and she ain't looking for a broke wolf man she's engaged to ben ben dies and she's like fuck i got bills to pay do you have he's got a brother hold on a minute dearest lawrence right she just like tilts that vagine 45 degrees and she is ready for action and it's like it makes the character incredibly unlikable right off the bat in my opinion because immediately it's like you know your brother ben missed you very much and then he died and i'm writing to you out of the blue even though we've never met by the way did i mention i have natural seas <laughs> lawrence is an actor and he's currently playing hamlet in england uh, gwen asks him to come and help out regarding ben's disappearance and it should be noted that lawrence is estranged from his family why we'll find out later <laughs> because he doesn't look or act like anybody else in the family and by all accounts is you know just he might as well have been dropped off in one of them baskets <laughs> lawrence returns home to his family's massive stone mansion that reminded me a lot of james bond's childhood home skyfall and it's pretty clear that at least once upon a time lawrence's family had some serious dough which again is why gwen is interested in him now that ben has been uh werewolf to death right so she's going for the rightful heir of werewolf manor absolutely also is living upstairs has a room upstairs and even getting out of the house as soon as ben dies if i were anthony hopkins i'd be like so you're going to find a place right you can't kick me out i got squatters rights my mail has been <laughs> delivered here for over six months you better get a judge i am not leaving this house i can call the constable uh it would make it easier if you just packed your things and left uh not leaving not leaving hmm. i'm not leaving <laughs> like Did i'm I here to tell stay you the one about 
Did I tell you the one about the census taker? Lawrence comes back to his childhood home and he enters into the house the same way that every stranger ever entered the home of the Adams family or the Munsters. You know, it's that <laughs> it's that slow amble where someone just looks around in stunned silence of the horror show around them because there are like well over a hundred animal heads mounted on the walls and this house is massive the house is also kind of a wreck inside it it's like this victorian equivalent of a 80s movie the morning after you know a bunch of kids had a house party when their parents were out of town it's just a mess there's just dust and junk and stuff everywhere when lawrence rolls in he's first greeted by this giant barking dog named samson which that's a great name for a giant barking dog but then lawrence is met by his father who is played by anthony hopkins and he's pointing a shotgun at him from the top of a staircase which you know (laughs) that it pretty much reminded me of coming home from college on any given weekend i would love to live in a castle by myself that's just part of who i am and i would probably end up being this guy has a shotgun because you never know who's going to try to break into the castle and sometimes you get to pop a little salt into their ass <laughs> like i wouldn't have buckshot i would have like, those salt pellets kind of thing but i would definitely have a shotgun and i would greet most visitors with it within four lines of dialogue in this film you immediately know that anthony hopkins is going to own this movie as an actor He dominates every scene that he's in with subtlety and nuance in the way that he speaks. His talent is undeniable. Also, the talent of the actors around him is unobservable. Agreed. And I don't know if his performance is made better because everyone else is just sort of standing around looking at each other. Or if he's just so good that he just sucks the energy out of the room and is able to reconfigure it into the brilliance that is anthony hopkins maybe it's the former i think they're i think everybody else just kind of stinks and he's just he's just incredible it would be like i don't know if like lebron james just went over to like a group of you know 13 year olds playing a game of pickup i was like hey you guys mind if i join and (laughs) like like what is going on here i would almost say that 13 year olds is a little too generous (laughs) i would say like overweight middle-aged guys that are mostly granny shotting playing games a horse maybe it's like when billy madison played dodgeball <laughs> with the group of first graders that yeah anthony hopkins is clearly acting circles around everybody in this and benicio del toro is so subdued in this movie as to be practically comatose like even in this scene when anthony hopkins is like well hello lawrence haven't seen you in a while and he's just like Anthony Hopkins, um, they're really going to be back here in Werewolf Manor. And you're like, what is happening here? What's strange, though, is that when uh, the Wolfman finally shows up, I never felt like I was watching Benicio Del Toro play this werewolf. It just, it felt like a, it could have been a stuntman or some other body double or CGI effect or something like that. It wasn't a Jekyll and Hyde or, I don't know, like a Incredible Hulk, you know, type scenario. Just to complete this minor thought, because I have so few. The fact that at no point in the movie does there ever seem 
to be this animal nature within Benicio del Toro. Like the way to do a werewolf movie these days is to have this character that is somehow tortured because the werewolf is the expression of the beast inside that Anthony Hopkins talks about. And Anthony Hopkins clearly talk it, like he's a character you totally believe has this animal aggressive nature. And when he becomes a, a wolf man, spoilers, that it's totally understandable. But when Benicio del Toro does it, you know transforms and becomes a beast and all it's just like oh so the guy who mumbles his way through this movie is now ripping his shirt off like the hulk okay i guess you know it just doesn't mean anything and it should at the very least there should be this thematic notion that lawrence talbot has this rage at uh you know again we're doing fan fiction for the movie but this rage at his father for what happened to his mother and this rage at being abandoned by his family and cast out and there's none of that that translates into the film i guess you could argue that it's there in subtext but it shouldn't be subtext it should be the fucking text of the movie this is a tortured character and it never gets there i agree with that one thing i I didn't note in the opening were the screenwriters of this particular film and there's a lot of really good dialogue in the movie david self who also wrote road to perdition is one of the screenwriters and Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, and he also wrote Sleepy Hollow, or, or, you know, the two primary names on it. And a lot of the dialogue is really well written. It's just more that the the characters themselves aren't as rich as they could be. And there are moments, again, maybe it's just that Anthony Hopkins couldn't take the, the nutritional content of a Happy Meal and read it out loud and make it sound like poetry. But parts of it really work and then parts of it don't. So let's start talking about all the stuff that doesn't work because it's everything else in the movie. Lawrence tells his dad, Anthony Hopkins, that uh, Gwen wrote to him to come and help find his brother, Ben. And then Anthony Hopkins says, hey, you're too late. We found his body yesterday in a ditch. And we also find out that Anthony Hopkins, again, at this point, has this manservant sing, and he has a turban on. And that's pretty much all we know about this guy at this point in the movie. I the entire time I was watching him on screen, what's going on in my head is sing, sing a song, sing out loud, sing out strong, whatever kind of seek you want to be. <laughs> Yeah, he's a non-character. It, like, he's just the, the guy from India that Anthony Hopkins hooked up with at some point. Which was just like, hey, Singh, what are you doing for, say, I don't know, the rest of your life? And he's like, I don't know, guess nothing. I could hang out at your place and clean my gun every night. Once Anthony Hopkins tells Lawrence uh, that they know what happened to his brother, he says, hope you have some clothes for the funeral. And then Anthony Hopkins goes over and he starts playing the piano. And Samson the dog growls at Lawrence as Lawrence walks past the dog. And in movies, dogs are always an indicator of a person's character (laughs) if a character likes dogs then that character is considered a nice person if a character hates dogs they're usually jerks if a dog in a movie doesn't like someone and growls as in this case we're a little suspect of them if a dog humps a person's leg then they will be a comedic foil if a dog talks to someone with moving lips it's hilarious unless those words are to go kill someone then the dog is evil and you can learn more about dogs and movies from my new book movies have gone to the dogs how to tell what's going on in your movie by observing dogs by chad cooper oh man this is awkward uh because i have a book coming out uh this fall also called all dogs go to the movies damn you oh i hate competing against my friends may the best dog (laughs) book win (laughs) 
<laughs> Lawrence says he wants to go see his dead brother's body. Because why wouldn't you? Well, yeah. His argument when the the mort like when he shows up at the mortuary or whatever passes for the mortuary in 1891. It's an abattoir. There's a bunch of dead hogs hanging from the ceiling, and the guy who's running the place looks like the Hamburglar without the mask and his cape. He's got this black and white striped shirt. Maybe best case scenario is what they're on prison release. He's like, hey, whoa, 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 look, uh, Benicio del Toro. You may not want to look at your brother here because he's pretty fucked up. Like, I'm not saying it was a wolf man, but I'm not saying it's not a wolf man, and it's. <laughs> that kind of damage that we're dealing with and he's like no i missed half his life and you're like what because you missed the important parts of his life you should see his mauled body what fucking kind of logic is this (laughs) lawrence goes over and pulls the sheet back off of his brother's corpse and when he sees the body the corpse just looks like a mummy i mean it's immediately decomposed lawrence recoils in shock in a way you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of uh billy madison when that kid showed him that he had peed his pants during the field trip and he's like hey billy i peed my pants and billy's like oh! <laughs> it's one of the <laughs> It's one of the few times that you see Benicio Del Toro show any sense of emotion. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Why didn't you tell me this was horrible? Dude, I just did. I If he had taken off his shoe and hit himself in the head with it, it would have been any less appropriate. <laughs> So after Lawrence sees his dead brother, he does what every normal person would do uh, after seeing your dead sibling's rotting corpse. Um, he heads to the nearest bar to get sloppy drunk. <laughs> This this was my favorite part of the movie, aside from the opening, when he's just like, huh, that was upsetting. Time to get drunk. <laughs> In this bar, all the local townies are there talking about Ben's murder. So that's got to be awkward, right? Don't, don't they know that's his brother? And they're just yapping about it. Like, they've all got these theories on how Ben was killed. And one guy in the bar says that he thinks that Ben went out to the edge of town to get it on with a gypsy whore. And that he thinks their dancing bear got hold of him. Um, and then the gypsies just left him in a ditch. That's his theory on how this guy was murdered. Whores followed by a dancing bear they're mauling speaking of gypsies that's how i was told i would die you know there are worse ways to go i mean you and i have both been witness to people slowly dying of cancer i mean having sex with a gypsy whore and then getting eaten to death by a dancing bear look that's not a bad alternative to slowly being eaten eaten from the inside (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, yeah if i told you Bo, look i'm gonna give you two choices you can have sex with a gypsy whore and then this dancing bear is going to maul you to death or over the next six to 24 months you are going to slowly rot away from the inside with cancer you don't have to put the cancer as the other part (laughs) of that equation you could just be like hey if you could die by being mauled to death by a bear you could and get the R of bear out of your mouth before I was like, yes, please. Will you film it? Can I be in a killer bear movie? Could I be dressed as a bear? Oh my God. If I were killed by a bear while dressed as a bear, that might be, honestly, that might be the, the best possible way I could go. <laughs> Given my love of the film Grizzly and not insignificantly Andrew Prime, then I think that it's only right that bears get their day. 
Here, here. Benicio del Toro is just getting loaded while all these villagers are floating ideas. There's the <laughs> the gypsy, the gypsy slash bear situation. Then it's just like I don't know. Maybe somebody just murdered him. And then you know, finally somebody's like, could be a werewolf. And that's where Benicio del Toro perks up as much as he ever does in this movie. Aside from the goo, he doesn't go that animated with it. It's more like a subtle lift of an eyebrow. It's it's basically the bar scene from an American werewolf in London, a far superior werewolf movie, as you pointed out. There is a moment, and it's a, a moment I really like in horror films, where you have the local in town that's like, well, it could be this. It's totally that. Where, like, if it's a group of teenagers in a VW van that have gone missing, and the parents come to look for them, and there's the one guy in the bar that's like, well, I suppose you could check on the outskirts of town, the old Ludlow family, well, they don't come into town much, and we hear a lot of chainsaws from their house. You know, at that <laughs> point, it's like, oh, that's totally what it is. When this movie stops to be a horror movie, it kind of works sometimes. And this is one of those scenes. This movie ought to play like a hammer horror film. And it's just, it's not even that smart. And those movies are dumb as shit. Well, yeah. Well, the guy you're talking about starts going off about how 25 years ago, you know, some creature attacked a person in town and his pa went home and melted down all their spoons to make silver bullets, which how are they going to eat soup? I don't know. That's their problem. And then Lawrence again kind of perks up an ear and he looks all distraught. And it's like 25 years ago, Lawrence looks to be about what? Maybe 30. Hmm. That's curious. I wonder, Mm. Bo. I wonder. (laughs) (sighs) Lawrence goes back to Werewolf Manor and he takes some of his brother Ben's belongings uh, back to Gwen, the former fiance. And there's a ring and there's a photo of Gwen wearing this ridiculously large hat that's straight out of Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Gwen sheds a few tears when she's looking at these items and somehow a single tear comes out of her right eye. But at the exact same time, two tears come out of her left eye at the exact same moment. So she has three tears streaming down her face all at once. I'd never seen that level of sadness. Yeah, I've never been that sad about anything. Um, One time I stubbed my toe real hard and a tear came out of my eye. And then when, you know what? When I went to my dad's funeral, I stubbed my toe there too. Yeah. Well, you got to watch those, uh, whatever they call them, them stands that they put coffins on. The toe stubbers? Yeah, toe stubbers. Though the weight of the coffin itself, not to mention the rotting body inside, makes it really, really heavy. I want to talk about Benicio Del Toro's appearance. In- Speaking of rotting bodies. <laughs> in this movie. His hair is black. I mean, like black, black. As are his eyebrows. And it's a bit unsettling. He reminded me of one of those Conan O'Brien, if they mated mashups of like Brad Pitt <laughs> and Mark Cuban. Which, when you hear that, you're like, oh, I could see that coming together. But when you see the end result, it's just like, what is happening here? I would throw in a peppering of Bob Goulet. (laughs) Ask your parents about Bob Goulet. But that level of dyed hair and eyebrows and singing Blue Danube as he's... (laughs) Pushing a gondola on the set of The Muppet Show. <laughs> Lawrence tells his uh, dad, Anthony Hopkins, that he saw his brother's body and that his brother had a strange medallion on him. Anthony Hopkins says that it's from the gypsies and that Ben was a liaison to the gypsies. So Ben, I'm guessing, on behalf of either the townsfolk or maybe his dad, would pay the gypsies a fee and they would keep their criminal activities to a minimum, which means pillaging, yes. Rape, no. Breaking, 
Right. Yes. Entering. No. Assault. Of course. Battery. Of course not. Aiding. Yes. Abetting. No. (laughs) (laughs) These gypsies sound like a bad lot. They do not sound like the good upstanding drunkard Christians uh, that we found back in town. And I kind of wonder, hmm, what religion could these gypsies be? I'll need to research that. I like the fact that this movie is not afraid to just embrace the term gypsies. You know, we're talking about gypsy curses. We're talking about the gypsies in town. We're talking about rousing the gypsies out of town. These days, you're supposed to use the term Romani, which is what they are, you know. Uh, That gypsies implies a... Not the nomadic people of the Romani, but just sort of spooky people with wagons on the edge of town. But I gotta admit, Chad, you tell me there are gypsies on the edge of town, I'm going. (laughs) You know what's on the edge of town most places? The best steakhouse. Or that horse farm, what stinks up the rest of town. Wait, are those two things related? Wait a minute, I've been eating horse meat. (laughs) I'll never go to jockeys again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those aren't grill marks. They're riding crop marks. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I wondered why I was ordering daddy's little helper by a nose. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins <laughs> says that the gypsies uh, will move on after they've sold all their wine that they can sell and offered up all the dark haired ladies that the young men can handle, which look, I'm guessing that's probably a lot. Yeah, these people sound great. They got plenty of wine and beautiful raven-haired women, as well as a bear. We know they've got a bear. A dancing bear. Now I just want to listen to Randy Newman music and go visit a gypsy camp. (laughs) Anthony Hopkins at this point goes over to his telescope and he looks up at the moon. Lawrence, his son, says he wishes that things could have been different. And Hopkins responds, never look back, Lawrence. Never look back. The past is a wilderness of horrors. And then Hopkins walks away from the room and without turning around to his son, he says, Lawrence, I'm glad you're home. Every word that Anthony Hopkins speaks in this movie is just perfect. He is so good in this movie. (laughs) And this movie's a real stinker. But it's well Uh, worth watching to just see him flex his acting muscles because he's just so damn good. He needs to fill the pockets of the robes that he wears around in this movie with nothing but microphones to drop as he leaves a scene because he is the best part of this movie and he always ends a scene with one little dig at either a character or blowing a harmonica or whatever the fuck he's doing. But it's always (laughs) like, you know, Anthony Hopkins out. Peace, everyone. Like, he can never just not say something or do something at the end of a scene. It's always got to be a finale of sort. I looked forward to him being in a scene in this movie because, like, I was just thinking, I can't wait to see what he's going to do with the dialogue that he's given and how he's going to emote. And, again, it's, like you said, it's it's the raising up of an eyebrow. It's the way that he turns his head. It's the subtlety of a, of a jaw clenching. It's a, a laugh at a joke that only he gets. He's just so damn good. I'm a big fan. Yeah, he he is far and away the best thing about this movie until he turns into a werewolf. And then it's really stinky. But we'll get to that. After this scene, Benicio Del Toro goes to bed because there's nothing more exciting in a movie than watching the main character take a nap. He has a dream that is his mother's death where he sees Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins if you're nasty, Um, holding the mother and she has a razor blade in one hand, like one of those old fashioned color purple straight razors. (laughs) 
I think that was the brand. The color purple brand, straight razor. <laughs> Sophia, Sophia, Sophia. Her neck has been cut as if to imply that she has taken her own life. Benicio Del Toro then wakes up. Goo! <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is supposed to imply to us that, oh, he witnessed his father discovering the body of his mother. Where she has taken her own life. Right. So then we cut from that to the funeral, which takes about two and a half seconds. They're just like, body's in. And then <laughs> Benicio Del Toro ends up chatting up Gwen, Emily Blunt's character. This is where, first of all, she is getting her claws in him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Where she's like, yes, I know I should probably leave and I have no reason or right to be here. But I think I'll stay if you don't mind, Lawrence. And he's just like, yeah, that's all right. And... <laughs> He tells her that he was sent away. And it's this whole story about how he was sent to an asylum when he was a kid after seeing his mother dead. And then after the asylum, he goes to live with his aunt in America to explain away the fact that he doesn't have a British accent. Please see Keanu Reeves in Bram Stover's Dracula. <laughs> right. I'm glad he's not trying one, but also I, I guess it's almost a nod to the original Wolfman where uh, Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains are supposed to be father and son. And there's always a, <laughs> a, a Dana Gould joke that comes to mind where he was talking about this film and talking about Claude Rains saying, well, hello, Lawrence. I'm glad you're, you're back from the States. It's nice to see you again. And Lawrence Talbot, as played by uh, Lon Chaney Jr., just goes, Hey, you pop! (laughs) (laughs) How you doing, Dad? Give us a big hug. Right. Right. (laughs) Where it's never mentioned in that movie why he would have this crazy flat accent. (laughs) So at least they give it some lip service in this movie, but it makes it no less kind of dumb because if he had grown up in England and been an English kid, even if you sent him away to live with his aunt, particularly if he was of the adolescent and pre-adolescent years, he would have worked that accent like a fucking dog with the ladies in America. (laughs) He would have come back sounding like, like, you know, a chimney sweep. Yes, that explains why he doesn't have the accent. One thing that isn't explained in this movie is why he's an actor. That feels like it should come into play at some point, because as you noted, Benicio Del Toro as Lawrence Talbot in this movie emotes about as much as, let's say, I don't know, a 100-year-old tortoise. It's just his eyes kind of look around every now and again. Maybe he takes a drink from a glass. It's so subdued. He almost looks like he's asleep or dead. It never really pays off in any meaningful way. They weave it into a bunch of fever dreams and you know nightmare sequences later on, but it doesn't really have purpose. And when you you get the Gwen voiceover at the beginning of the movie, one of the things you see him doing is holding the the skull, like giving the Yorick speech from Hamlet, and it's just you know, well, I mean, infinite just and. <laughs> You're like, that's the kind of the movie I want to watch. I want to watch this boring-ass character doing Hamlet, or at least the first couple of acts. <laughs> I'm here now, That's a question. So Gwen leaves, but not before, again, making eyes at Lawrence. She's like, you know, they're going to take my thumbs, Tommy. They're going to take my thumbs. I need money. And yeah, and it's clear that Benicio Del Toro isn't so horned up by her yet that he's like, 
Oh, I guess you can just stay, maybe. I don't know. She's like, well, I guess I'll go back to London. I mean, unless you want me to stay. No, oh, oh, no, it's weird. I know. I was having sex with your brother. I know it's weird. Um, I'll be in London if you want me. Lawrence says that he's going to go find out who killed his brother. And Anthony Hopkins tells Lawrence that he should stay indoors because it's a full moon on this particular night. Lawrence doesn't listen to his dad. And he heads out to the gypsies on the edge of town because he's heard, you know, there are whores there. He's going to go out and get some questions about who killed his brother. And again, maybe get laid. Lawrence arrives at the gypsy camp and he goes to see Maliva. It's pronounced Mulva. Lawrence goes to see... Wait, it rhymes with what? Vulva? (laughs) That's right. With a woman's sexual, you know. He goes out to the gypsy camp and he goes to see Dolores, um, who is a a fortune teller. (laughs) (laughs) If I had a nickel for every time someone told me, like, will you please not go to the gypsy camp tonight? For the love of God, give it a rest. We see some town folk uh, back in the, the village. Yeah. Your favorite thing, a mob. Well, yeah. Well, so the townsfolk put together, yeah, they put together a mob and a bunch of vigilantes. They have torches and they're riding through the woods and they're on their way to the gypsy camp to do what vigilantes do. And one vigilante, he's kind of hanging back, chilling out to see, you know, what's what. And then, foomp, he gets sideswiped. But what we can only assume is a wolf man. Our group of vigilantes uh, come into the gypsy camp to kill the dancing bear. So I'm guessing that that one bar patron won them over with his whore slash murdering dancing bear theory but before they can kill the dancing bear which there is a dancing bear in this movie the whole camp just turns into chaos as the wolf man just starts filleting people's backs lopping off arms and legs with the stealth death skills of a ninja i mean he's (laughs) in and out and people are just getting slaughtered before they even know what's going on all right so a couple of things here first of all this bear looks stupid Now, I love bears in movies, but I don't like cartoon bears in movies. And there's a little bit of trivia that says that this bear was actually the same bear that they used from the Golden Compass, that movie. And they just reskinned the bear animation to be a grizzly instead of a polar bear. And it looks so cheap, man. The number of killer bear movies I have seen in my time is, is far too many to count. Every one that was ever made, I think. And this is one of the shittiest looking bears I've ever seen. This includes the film Prophecy. What would you say is the greatest bear death of all time that you've ever seen? The Prophecy also. It's a shitty looking mutant bear in the Prophecy, but it also includes a scene where this same mutant bear swats a kid in a sleeping bag. The sleeping bag flies across the campsite and hits a rock with an explosion of feathers. It's fucking glorious. What about The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin when that giant bear just kills that dude. I mean, look, any bear death is a good death. I think we've established that in this episode. I would point to a movie called Backcountry, which has a really great bear attack in it. The rest of the movie is not so good, but the first 30 minutes are worth watching just to get to the bear attack in it, which is pretty outstanding. Also, a film called Into the Grizzly May starring Billy Bob Thornton, which is kind of a remake of the movie Grizzly. Also, Thomas Jane and James Marsden are in that one, and that's got an honest to good 
goodness bear that uh, there's not a whole lot of like bear puppet work in it or CGI bears. It's just a good trained bear that's constantly swatting Scott Glenn in the face. He's in it too. What about the Grizzly Man movie where that guy was actually killed by a bear? I don't think you can do outdo that, right? I enjoy that movie because that is living proof that stupidity knows no bounds. <laughs> that would have been a better title for that movie. <laughs> right, like I'm just going to hang it like I'm kind of one with the bears. No, you're not. Those are bears. But eventually they're going to get bored with you and or hungry. And then they're just going to eat you because that's what bears do. I didn't have a problem in this movie of them reskinning the polar bear to be a grizzly bear. The problem I had is that if it's a dancing bear, it should have a pink tutu on. <laughs> also, it should dance, which it never does in this movie. <laughs> There's a lot of problems with the bear in this film. It's like, this is for me, edge play, where it's like, you're telling me that there's a dancing bear in a gypsy camp at the edge of town. And then you show the bear for about three and a half seconds. It doesn't dance. We don't spend any time with all the raven haired women at the gypsy camp. It sounds like you want to detour out of the movie that we're in and just go hang out with the whores and the bears. If my alternative is hanging out with Benicio del Toro in this movie, <laughs> then I am a hundred percent headed to the gypsy camp once more. So our wolf man is just running around this camp, slaughtering people left and right. But it should be noted that we never really see the wolf man. And we get some good kills here. Rick Baker, special effects master, is the first gypsy that's killed in the sequence here. Um, One guy gets his fingers lopped off as he's reaching out and the, the wolf man removes them quickly. And then the wolf man... Uh, takes his claws and jams them up in the guy's mouth, all Wolverine style. And everything is very quick. It's edited in such a way that you never really see the beast himself. And so Lawrence, uh, he grabs a shotgun and he sees the wolf man chasing a boy who is running away from the camp. And so Lawrence runs off to go, I don't know, protect the boy, kill the wolf man. It's not really explained. Lawrence runs off and the wolf man attacks him and bites him. And the vigilantes and the gypsies together show up and save Lawrence from being ultimately killed killed and so Dolores the gypsy shows up and she stitches him up using this John Rambo technique of flesh suturing (laughs) yeah it's a real like do you have a paper clip and a shoelace yes (laughs) I can save his shoulder also there are gypsies in her ear they're like better let this guy die I mean (laughs) you know what's gonna happen right and she's like I have to save him he's a man and they're like no no he's not A hundred percent not. You know that he just got bit by a werewolf, and I don't know if you saw the title of this movie, but he's going to turn into a werewolf, and he's just going to kill a bunch more people, potentially us. We already have problems with the bear and the villagers. What do you think they're going to say if it's a gypsy camp full of werewolves? I don't know why this is a thing in this movie. It's mentioned a couple of times, but it's like, yes, he is a man. And also a beast. But where does one end and the other begin? It's like, I'm as soon as he sprouts claws and hair and big teeth, then he's a beast. He's not a man anymore. It's not a one-hand clapping kind of koan to meditate over. As you said that, my first thought was, where does the man end and where does the beast begin? In his pants. Sure. I had a buddy of mine once who referenced Police Academy, where Steve Gutenberg, when we first meet his character, he's wearing a shirt that is meant for maternity wear, and it says one in the oven, and there's an arrow pointing down. It's funny in Police Academy, because you're like, oh, this is a guy, and the arrow's pointing to his penis. But my buddy pointed out that it would have been funnier if he wore the shirt backwards. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. Same friend came to me two years later, and we were talking about hilarious shirts that one might find at Myrtle Beach, your Pensacola, Florida's, etc., etc. Um, the same shirt where it says. Um, the man, the legend, and the man has an arrow that points up and the legend has an arrow that points down. And he supposed the same conclusion that he thinks wearing that shirt backwards makes the, the shirt immeasurably funnier. And I agree with both of those points. I've always liked the I'm with stupid t-shirt with the arrow pointing down and could also work. <laughs> in reverse so the gypsies bring lawrence back to werewolf manor and uh dad anthony hopkins is there and and puts his son to bed lawrence has a series of fever dreams where we see gwen and we see this thing that looks like Gollum creeping up on his bed and then we see the wolf man <laughs> attacking him yeah it doesn't you're like what was that but we'll we'll explain that later don't worry i did uh have the same note that Gollum attacks him here <laughs> and as an audience member it's truly head scratching of like, what was that? It looks like Bat Boy or one of those things from what was the spelunking movie? The the not the deep. oh the descent. I thought you were gonna say from the the Weekly World News, but <laughs> well, that's where Bat Boy's from. Lawrence finally wakes up from his uh, recovery, and Gwen is now sitting bedside. What? Why are you here? <laughs> like, oh yeah, they're rich. Lawrence is now healing miraculously, and Dad Anthony Hopkins comes in, and he basically thanks Gwen for sticking around, but you know, it's time for you to beat it before maybe what she tries to put her hooks into him. Um, <laughs> Lawrence goes down to visit Singh, the manservant of the house, and Singh is cleaning his shotgun as he is wont to do, I guess what, every other hour? He has nothing else that he's doing. He doesn't cook. Clearly, he doesn't clean. Lawrence asks him why he stayed for all these years and whether or not Singh believes in curses. Singh shows him a box full of silver bullets, and they have this back and forth that ends with Lawrence telling Singh that he didn't know that he hunted monsters, and Singh says, sometimes monsters hunt you. Ugh. It doesn't make any sense. Nope. It's one of those moments where someone tries to sound like they're providing sage mystical insights and they just come across sounding like a moron. <laughs> right. It, it's like if one of them people that's like, you know, hey, can I get a little honey for my tea? Sometimes the tea is the honey. No, no, it's not. I'm asking you for some honey and your crazy make ups aren't going to put honey in my tea. <laughs> so get to work <laughs> or you're not getting a tip. Do you want some honey for your tea or would you like some tea for the honey like i swear to god i'm gonna stab you <laughs> with this fork yeah. if i don't get honey for my tea seeing is feeling some pressure here because all right first of all he is indian you know being from india the the, the land of mystics He's not really bringing much to the table. Like you said, he's not cooking. He ain't cleaning. He's got a handful of silver bullets. He can't really tell Benicio del Toro outright, like, oh, these are for your dad, just in case. And, but which, we'll get to this in a minute, why why on earth he never used them before. Yeah, so he's got to sound kind of smart. It's like he's working a job that he's underqualified for, <laughs> and is just trying to say the shit that is going to make it sound like he ought to be there. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely ought to have a manage switch uh, in, in the building uh, so you can manage it. Mm -hmm. What you need is a double compressor. You gotta, if you don't have your double compressor, then the, uh, 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 the, the backwash is going to end up uh, uh, compiling on you. It would have made no less sense if he said uh, 220, 221, whatever it takes. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to say that. <laughs> Have I become so predictable, Chad? No, I, I'm just that observant. 
<laughs> so we come back to the village and uh, Van Helsing shows up. I'm sorry. I mean, Inspector Aberlane, who's played by Hugo Weaving, which, as noted in the intro, uh, is Agent Smith from The Matrix, a.k.a. the voice of Rex the dog from the movie Babe. Ah, nice. Aberlane goes to Werewolf Manor and he wants to speak to Lawrence. Gwen is totally down for Lawrence speaking to the inspector, but Dad Anthony Hopkins, he's really putting up a fight to prevent his son from talking to the law, which... That's curious. I wonder why. Hmm. Right. But yeah, he's immediately like, Mr. Werewolf, (laughs) you have, (laughs) you're an actor. I appreciate that. (laughs) Did you call him Mr. Werewolf? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lawrence comes sauntering in with Samson the dog. Remember the dog that hated him earlier? Well, now these two are best buds. Curious indeed. Aberlane recognizes Lawrence as a stage actor. Maybe just acting back then was so bad that you could emote this little and just be head of the class. There's a little bit of interplay between Aberline and... Is that how you said... Ab- is it Aberline? Aberline? Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it was Aberline, but I don't know. I wasn't paying attention, clearly. I'm not European. i just, you know, agent detective. <laughs> And so Agent Detective is like, Mr. Werewolf, maybe, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) because you play so many different characters, one wonders what else hides beneath that mask. (laughs) And Benicio de Torres' response is naturally, that's river. And, but he, he's like, so you're, you're, you know, you were the detective who didn't catch Jack the Ripper and everybody's like, whoa, 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 come on, man. Kitten's got claws. Am I right? (laughs) It's a little sensitive. Yeah. I don't think these two are going to be friends. They're just uh, like, they're immediately at odds. And if you're Benicio del Toro, I don't understand why you're not like, check me out, man. I've been acting my way across Europe or wherever, you know, doing Hamlet in nursing homes, one presumes, <laughs> to help help with the sleep deprived. Yeah, well, the inspector says that he wants to have he wants to send out a, a medical professional to inspect him. And he's like, OK, then fine. All right. I will do it. I'm going to. I said it's OK. I'm leaving. Get out. (laughs) Yeah, so he fucks off. Then there's another bit where Benicio del Toro has a scary dream. Then the next real scene is him skipping stones. (laughs) With Gwen. Yeah, just doing werewolf shit like skipping stones. I mean, that's why we're here, right? To watch Lawrence Talbot telling Gwen how to whip (laughs) stones across the pond or whatever. Oh, yeah. You have to just whip your wrist. Oh, whip the wrist. Okay. It's just boring and stupid. And again, begs the question, like, what is this character even doing in this movie? Which one are you talking about? Lawrence or Gwen? (laughs) No, Lawrence has to be there to be the wolf man. Gwen. Let's follow this character. So far, Gwen has written a letter to say that your brother died, which Anthony Hopkins character could have done. And then hung out is really all she's done in this movie. We find out later she has a store selling incredibly (laughs) 
fragile statuary and busts. Yeah, going back to the color purple again, it, it's basically Miss Seeley's pants store, except with statues. After they're learning to uh, whip it, whip it good with these uh, rocks across the river, Lawrence hears a horse whinny from miles away, and you know he's turning into a werewolf or something. And so he blows off Gwen and heads back to Werewolf Manor. And a bunch of vigilantes show up outside the mansion, and they want to take Lawrence into custody because he was bitten by the beast. They grab him and, and Lawrence struggles against all of these men and then push comes to shove and then kabam! Uh, Dad Anthony Hopkins blasts the head off of a statue outside of their house and shrapnel hits some guy in the head who screams about it being uh, in his eyes. And Anthony Hopkins says, sorry, Thompson, I meant to shoot you. It's the same delivery that we saw him give in Dracula. It's so dry and so funny. I I can't really do an Anthony Hopkins impersonation. It's it's impossible to accurately pull that off. But the way he delivers this is this real fuck you. You know what I mean? Like like I could have shot you right. in the head. I did this on purpose. Be glad that you're walking away with a little bit of ceramic shard in your face. It's a real nice move on uh, Anthony Hopkins part. But again, like you said, anytime he shows up in the movie, it's like, oh, something's probably going to happen in this scene. <laughs> Unlike the previous scene where we're skipping stones and playing grab ass with the plot of this film. <laughs> Hopkins tells these guys that they're trespassing and that Singh, his manservant, is up on the roof and he's a dead shot and he's going to kill them all. And he's completely bullshitting them because Singh, we later find out, is nowhere even to be found. He's like, in town picking up groceries or something sings on the drink again you know anthony hopkins is like yeah he'll drop eight of you before he has to reload which is a pretty good line finally all the villagers are like well i guess we don't want to get shot by an indian so because that means you go to hell benicio del toro finally does the wise thing for both himself and this movie and it's like hey emily blunt once you get the hell out of this movie for a little bit so he suspects, like Benicio del Toro starts to buy into the hype that he is a werewolf. That, you know, all the evidence stacking up against him is starting to make a lot of sense to him. And also you see back in town that the locals, no fools they, are also melting shit down to make silver bullets of their own. Which just led me to uh, wish that I was watching the movie Silver Bullet again. So I could hear that narration about like what an old old world craftsman the gunsmith was uh, as he crafted the silver bullet that gary Busey almost drops in the vent and then i just turned off the movie and i watched silver bullet <laughs> how was there never a lone ranger versus the wolf man versus coors light mashup <laughs> Are, are presented by Coors Light so that the Lone Ranger is actually shooting cans of Coors Light at a werewolf? I don't know. That's a great question, and I don't have an answer, which is awful. So yeah, so the whole town's freaking out over this Wolfman situation, and in this montage, we see the vigilantes have staked a reindeer to the ground as bait for the Wolfman. The reindeer is next to a large pit that they've dug to catch the creature. And as you said, there's all of these scenes of people, you know, making bullets and boarding up their houses. And we see the inspector walking the city streets. The music and the editing of this moment lets us know that something big is going to happen. And we see Lawrence now approach Samson the dog and the dog growls a little bit, but then the dog just runs off because he's scared of Lawrence or something. I don't know what to make of that. I'm going to have to go back and edit my book before it gets published. It just, it threw everything into to disarray. 
I don't know what to make of this character now. Yeah, uh, you can check out the chapter of my book, uh, All Dogs Go to the Movies, uh, entitled That Dog from the Wolfman. Hey, he he don't act right, (laughs) is the name of the chapter. But yeah, it's all over the place. It's like, there's a point later in the movie where he sees the dog and he's like, Samson, you're like, you don't know me? It's like, no, the dog was growling at you when you first showed up and you weren't a wolf person then you know to be gender neutral about it and then you became a wolf person and now the dog's growling at you and you're surprised like i don't know this dog's all over the place i think it's a problem with the dog not the wolf person (laughs) the inspector goes into the pub and the bar winch comes over and gives him an earful as to why he should be out there looking for the person what killed her husband the inspector says he's sticking close to town because that's where all the people live and if they're the ones that are going to get killed he wants to be nearby and then and then he tells the bar winch to go get him a pint of bitter which for what it's worth i do not like ipas oh really that's a shame we cut back to Werewolf Manor, and Lawrence sees Dad Anthony Hopkins heading out uh, into the courtyard. And so Lawrence follows his father out to his mother's grave at the family mausoleum. Dad Anthony Hopkins goes down some stairs into this lower level of the family crypt. And down there, there's this dungeon of sorts with this large wooden chair that is adorned with all manner of restraints. And there's also like 50 lit candles all over the place. Speaking of those candles, I've got a quick question. Who the fuck is lighting all these candles? Is that job is that what he does around the house is just light all these candles or do they bring in like whoever handles stings candles stings candles whoever was working for kenneth branna and lighting all of his candles in his honeymoon suite there are candles all over the place and it's not just like one or two it's like 50 to 100 lit candles everywhere but in the to this yeah. movie's credit we do see anthony hopkins lighting a few candles so maybe he scampered ahead and just really got into lighting them as though it was i don't know like a birthday cake which you know what you start lighting more than like eight or ten candles on a birthday cake it gets stressful because the first like 10 or 12 start to melt down or get the numbers you know right. you got two candles to worry about at that point just put one candle <laughs> right here's a goddamn birthday cake blow out the candle <laughs> quit being a greedy asshole <laughs> it was was that the speech that you used to give when you worked at applebee's it's a speech i give to any child's birthday i attend I got something to say. Lawrence goes down into this mausoleum and sees a shrine to his mother. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at this fancy coffin that she's in. Holy shit. Is this where all the the family money went? Like Werewolf Manor's vast fortune went into the creation of this incredibly elaborate statue of the mother built into the top of this tomb maybe maybe they just dumped a bunch of candle wax on her and that's just her corpse underneath it i don't know (laughs) maybe that's what Singh did (laughs) i'm just looking for something there's a chair down there with all these straps that immediately if i were lawrence uh i would be like who the fuck is jerking off down here with (laughs) this fancy sex chair i would be thinking that sing and his dad were hanging out down there (laughs) right right (laughs) once once again the show circles around to autoerotic asphyxiation (laughs) except in this case anthony hopkins has a chair for it (laughs) i know they'll never ever let me out of here again Anthony Hopkins at this point starts to talk to his son and he tells him that he truly loved Lawrence's mother. And when she died, that Anthony Hopkins, part of him died that day too. Again, this scene is another example of Anthony Hopkins. Just every word is just poetry. He's so good. 
Anthony Hopkins tells Lawrence that he's sorry that Lawrence saw his mother die as a child. And he's like, look, I know it really messed you up. And then he very passively escorts Lawrence to the door of the dungeon where Anthony Hopkins just very casually locks himself into this secluded room at the bottom of the mausoleum and thus locking Lawrence on the outside. And it's here that Anthony Hopkins apologizes to his son and he says, you know, that his darkest days lie ahead of him and that the villagers will most likely blame you. And you're just like, well, for what? And the way he delivers it of just him being like, I'm setting you up. You're fucked. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty great. It's here that we do slash don't get to see Lawrence transform into the wolf, man. They keep the transformation really in the shadows. We see his eyes go yellow. We see sort of the stretching of the hands and the feet. But in many instances, it's obscured by candle flames or the way that it's positioned with where his character is on a staircase as he's climbing out. We don't really get to see the like the hulking out of this creature. And it's punctuated by a werewolf howl and everybody in town, including Singh back at Castle Wolfenstein and everybody else is just totally freaked out. The inspector hears it. He jumps on his horse to ride off to go. I don't know where we then see our townsfolk and the reindeer looking around like, oh shit, this is about to get real. They're all, you know, looking at each other. They've got their guns. And then there's this moment of like, oh, we got him now, man. We've got him now because the, the werewolf shows up And just starts tearing people apart. One small note about this whole werewolf business. Now that we're full on Benicio Del Toro is actually being the Wolfman. Rick Baker, who, as noted, fantastic makeup artist who dies first in the movie. Or not very first, the brother does. But he's the the first person killed by a Wolfman at the gypsy camp. He, when he heard they were making this movie, he marched into the offices of the executives and said, I need to do this. This is my jam. He's the guy who did American Werewolf in London, which is, I, I would say, objectively the best werewolf transformation ever put to film he comes to you and says i need to do this i have more experience now than i did then i want to take on another werewolf transformation and once more set the bar for what this should be and instead because you know joe johnston comes into you know steps in the role of director three weeks before the shooting starts none of that ever makes it and it all becomes a bunch of cgi bullshit that doesn't look very good and it doesn't hold up because CGI always improves and it dates a film like no other. Like, I would argue that American Werewolf in London's transformation sequence looks less dated than this one does. There are moments in this, you're just looking at it like, well, this is fake. As opposed to when you go back to American Werewolf, because all of these were real, tangible props, it's like, this is real. At this point, at least in, I don't know, computer technology and cinema and everything else, it it just, it looks disingenuous. It looks cobbled together. There's no weight to it at all. There's no, like you said, there's no tangibility to it. Whereas you, you look at something like American Werewolf or The Howling, or the thing movies of that era kind of that early 80s it was sort of an arms race 
in horror films to see who could have the most impressive practical effects work. And you had incredibly talented guys like Rob Bottin and Rick Baker and uh, uh, Tom Savini doing incredible work at the time. It's just so frustrating that it feels like we've taken a step back from that. This, I know I'm on a soapbox temporarily. I'll step off here in a minute. But as a lifelong horror fan, there is nothing that frustrates me more than having the ability and particularly the talent of someone like Rick Baker to do something truly remarkable and if not sort of earth shattering in terms of, of taking pushing practical effects further at the very least captured the spirit of those kinds of movies where there was this sense of hey we can do all this stuff and you can use CGI to sweeten that a little bit to smooth the rough edges and take out the strings and shit like that but there's just no replacement for a real thing being in front of the camera in camera effects are always better looking even if you use CGI to to do a little bit of adjusting it's just it, it's so frustrating to me in watching this movie in particular because this was like Rick Baker was known to be working on this seeing this movie in the theater which I did and seeing that transformation sequence both this one and the one we'll get to in a little bit at the uh, asylum or whatever or were some of the most frustrating moments I've ever had watching a movie where I'm like no what are you doing? This is all wrong. <laughs> and even the scene that we're talking about here where he goes on the attack and is, you know, killing all the people, the best parts of it are where you see the guy in makeup, where you see Benicio Del Toro in the Wolfman makeup, because I don't think that those prosthetics are bad. I think they're actually pretty cool, and they kind of harken back to the original 41 Wolfman, but they're certainly updated. And I think it looks pretty good. It's just when it becomes a cartoon werewolf... <laughs> It becomes Fang Face, <laughs> where you know you go from this practical dude in a suit that looks pretty effective and pretty scary to ooh, ooh, you know him running <laughs> across across the fields, where you're just like, oh no, why did you do that? <laughs> this this was so good for like two and a half seconds. During this scene, as all of the villager slaughtering goes down, one by one, they all get killed. The reindeer gets away. So good for the reindeer. One of the remaining survivors just runs off as the wolfman is in pursuit. And in this sequence, it's pretty clever because the wolfman goes from running on two legs to four legs. And in this sequence, I felt like this was a moment where at least the CGI at the time really worked well of him, you know, being upright and then, you know, being, you know, lower to the ground to be able to gain speed. He's chasing this one uh, vigilante the guy runs and he's like shooting over his shoulder backwards without aiming and he ends up landing in a it looks like a swamp or some kind of a pond or something up to his waist and the wolfman approaches and then this villager he takes aim and he shoots the wolfman once but that, that didn't slow him down and then he's thinking like like oh this is it and instead of like really taking aim and, and shooting the wolf man in his head. The guy takes the gun and puts it to his temple to commit suicide as opposed to being turned into a werewolf himself or getting killed, which doesn't really seem like it's taken any time. You know, it's not as if the, the werewolf is torturing people to death. It's just like, no, I mean, he it's swiping your dead. Like, yeah, take your shot at the wolf man. I, I mean, at least stand a chance as opposed to no chance. In my opinion, that is taking the flight in fight or flight to a whole nother level. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Kill this guy or run away. Wait a minute. 
What if I kill myself? Check and mate, wolf man. Yeah, stupid dog man. Can't follow me to the grave. Good luck. The inspector shows up at the reindeer pit location and finds all manner of body parts just strewn about all over the place. There's arms and intestines and goop and slop and blood. And then we see this this other really strange scene. There's one other vigilante villager, angry mob attendee who's escaped and he's walking through the woods and then he gets startled and he shoots his gun and the flash of the barrel illuminates the wolf man who attacks this remaining guy and then there's a final howl and we come back to the inspector who's alone he's looking up at the moon and this scene is kind of ended right he's just like mr werewolf (laughs) well played the next morning lawrence is covered in blood Uh, anthony hopkins shows up and he speaks to his son to awaken him and he says lawrence wake up lawrence terrible things you've done terrible things lawrence Forgive my Anthony Hopkins, but yes, it's just... It's the trailer line. Yeah, I mean, I remember that when they were initially advertising the film. And seeing Anthony Hopkins saying, you've done terrible things, Lawrence. It's chilling. You know, it's like, this is why you want to go see this movie. Because Rick Baker's doing the special effects. Anthony Hopkins is telling Benicio Del Toro, you've done terrible things, Lawrence. And you're like fuck this looks good and it turns out that's only good for this moment uh (laughs) this is truly one of those movies where it's like hey all the good stuff is in the trailer it's like yeah all the good stuff is in the trailer if you sneak into the first three and a half minutes and then watch the trailer you've seen the best this movie's got to offer the townsfolk show up and they arrest blood covered lawrence anthony hopkins tells the inspector that he was correct about lawrence you know because he was in the booby hatch and my son's a nut job so good job inspector Case closed. Lawrence is then taken to Lambeth Asylum in London. It's pretty much what you would expect of a 19th century asylum in London to look like. There's lots of dingy white walls and tiles that almost take on this gray and muted green hue. There's a a random person just laying in the hallway of this asylum when we first see it. And, you know, maybe they're sleeping, maybe sedated, maybe they're dead. Who knows? Take your pick. Kick them in the stomach. Find out. I'm not interested in any of your late 19th century asylums unless they contain a Tom Waits. Also, what are we doing here? Well, I'll tell you what we're doing. We're taking Lawrence and we're putting him in a straitjacket and then dunking him backwards into a big ice water vat for treatment. That's my point. What are we doing here? Why are we in this asylum? Why is this sequence in this movie? It is pointless. (laughs) It does nothing to advance the story or the character. It is just a bunch of shit that we threw into the movie because I guess we got to pat out the runtime or something. If the point of this movie is not about the bestial nature of man, but that late 19th century uh, English asylums and mental institutions were shitty places. I don't know that we need to make that movie. I think we all get it. (laughs) well lawrence not only goes through ice water treatments they're jamming his neck full of medicine i don't know what it is he gets shock treatments and it's just mercury i guess so he goes through a bunch of dream sequences with all manner of nightmare there's his mom and his dad and his brother and gwen and shows him on stage acting or something it just 
to your point, it, it doesn't really belong. However, in my opinion, the best scene of the whole movie happens in the asylum because Lawrence wakes up to see Anthony Hopkins in his holding room. And it's here that Anthony Hopkins explains to his son how he, Anthony Hopkins, first became a werewolf in India. He goes through this narrative about how he found this feral wild boy that lived in a cave, which is that vision of Gollum we saw a few times earlier in the movie. And apparently this kid was a werewolf and it bit Anthony Hopkins and Bob's your uncle. We've, you know, we've got two generations of werewolves in London. It's here that we and Lawrence find out that it was Anthony Hopkins who killed the mom when he was in his werewolf form and it was not a suicide as previously shown to us. So far, so good? Mm-mm. I mean, <laughs> he's explaining this shit like a Bond villain. He's detailing all of this. But if anybody can detail this much exposition and have you sit on the edge of your seat and just be like, uh-huh, then what happened? Then what did you do? Oh my gosh, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Tell me more. What we are being told is that Benicio Del Toro's memory of his mother committing suicide is false. And what really happened was that he came across Anthony Hopkins in in full werewolf mode eating the mother. Why did Anthony Hopkins not just eat Benicio Del Toro at that point? Or the child version of him? Instead of like seeing the kid go, oh my god, you ate my mom. And then run off well he was full but was it a repressed memory what happened that benicio del toro ever thought his mother committed suicide why isn't there some point in the story where like you could make all this asylum stuff make sense if they were trying to convince benicio del toro that he was not a werewolf the same way that he had been convinced as a child that his father was not a werewolf who ate his mother werewolves aren't hamsters they don't eat their young they have <laughs> A certain code that they live by. I am unaware of any sort of werewolf code. The whole thing just frustrates the shit out of me because none of it makes any sense and it doesn't add up. My understanding of werewolf behavior is mostly, and that is as much logic as most werewolves seem to have, except for the point where they see someone that they're in love with and that person is like, don't you know me? Yeah, which happens in this movie, it happens in American Werewolf, it kind of happens in The Howling and blah, blah, blah. It just drives me up the fucking wall, Chad, because, <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense but you got to admit it's still a good scene the acting is fine i can't enjoy the acting because i'm too busy being upset about like what is happening here why does he not remember any of this i no reason okay anthony hopkins caps off a brilliant scene by leaving a similar straight razor that we saw falsely in the flashback earlier with lawrence saying hey look man you're a werewolf now if you want to do the noble thing kill yourself but uh I'm out. Yeah, I do like that. He bolts out of the room, you know, heads down the hallway, playing his harmonica, as you said earlier, just commanding every scene that he's in unapologetically. Following this, we get a scene where the doctor who was sort of torturing Lawrence with the ice water bath and the electroshock therapy, this doctor wheels Lawrence into a, a medical lecture hall. It's one of those halls with the sort of semicircle of seats that tear upward so they can watch surgeries or something like that. And this doctor tells this audience filled with white men with mutton chops and, you know, hilarious facial hair <laughs> that he's like, hey, look, this nut job 
Blowjob thinks he's a werewolf. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave him here. And then that big observation window high atop the room, the full moon's about to show up and we're going to prove out that he's not a werewolf. Sound good? Sounds good. In this movie, this is the cinematic equivalent of going up the hill on a roller coaster. I mean, it is a click, 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 click to an inevitable explosion of energy and excitement that in this case will also involve lots of bloodletting. Our inspector strolls in to like, hey, hmm, what's going on here? <laughs> this should be interesting, sir. Hmm. So we're just strapping him in a chair, huh? All right. They remove Lawrence's mouth gag and Lawrence calls the doctor a moron and then very observantly says, I'm going to kill all of you. It's about this time that the moon shows up in the window and Lawrence just full on wolfs out. It's not terrible, but it's not as good as it should be. There is also one of my favorite moments in this movie, not because it's good, but because it's just so stupid, where as he's becoming a wolfman uh, behind him, you know, the, the evil doctor that's been subjecting Lawrence to all these stupid experiments and whatnot, that all the other doctors are like, behind you. And he's just like, oh, gentlemen, quiet, quiet. Um, gentlemen, as you know, the moon is now shining onto my patient. Uh, he is clearly not a werewolf, even though I won't turn my head slightly to my left to confirm this. It's like watching children at a birthday party, you know, with a magician or a clown in front of them. And they're all like, it's right behind you. Has anyone <laughs> seen my assistant? He's over there. Well, where could he be behind you? Right. I mean, there's a moment where like he sees all the other doctors freaking out. Shitting their like, pants in fear, man. He's, he's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> it is so supremely dumb. <laughs> this moment belongs in a horror comedy, not a real horror film, which is what this movie is pretending to be. <laughs> but it's also one of my favorite things in the movie because it is just the dumbest. The wolf man throws the doctor out the window and he gets impaled on a wrought iron fence. He only kills a couple of people in the room, so he doesn't hold true to his promise to kill everyone. And then the wolf man escapes out the window and then he jumps across the rooftops of london our inspector gets a gun and starts shooting at the wolfman and is that accurate that this many police officers in london would have had loaded weapons on them at any given time i don't think so because the whole thing about london or england in general right is that they don't have guns even the police like the, the police do but they have to get the big swat team out who have the guns Everybody in this movie's got a gun. It's because an American showed up in England. <laughs> they were like, all right, boys. Remember, we have a visiting actor from the New World. They immediately just mount up. The wolfman runs down a street and the inspector corners him with about 15 other men. And they all have guns, as noted. And they just start blasting away and the wolfman escapes. And then the next morning we see Lawrence wake up and he's all covered in blood. Because the previous night as he was rampaging through London, he killed a bunch of just indiscriminate people we then see gwen going into her curio shop which sells a bunch of bullshit that nobody would ever buy and um, her name's on the <laughs> storefront so i guess that she or her family owns this business i don't know let's be honest the bank owns the business and it's not going to be there in about seven days if she doesn't get hitched to one of these <laughs> werewolves <laughs> gwen goes in her store and she finds lawrence in the back he basically brings gwen up to speed on what's going on with the movie's plot and she gives him some clothes i think <laughs> and 
Uh, she says that I can find a way to help you through magic or something. I, I don't even understand what the hell she says. Lawrence says that he envied his brother's time with Gwen and then she gets all weepy and then he's like, I got to get back to Wolfenstein Manor. Gwen says, no, 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 stay. And and she really comes across as being desperate because again, they're going to break her legs. I'm guessing. I don't know what kind of financial straits she's dealing with right now. That For some reason, I don't know why this is in this movie the two of them share like a romantic kiss nobody in the audience gives a shit about this romantic moment no it doesn't matter you know it would be probably like watching anthony hopkins kiss a street lamp pole would have been more interesting. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if Anthony Hopkins showed up and had like a gypsy lady that he's been keeping up with uh, <laughs> that you didn't know about this is my werewolf bride and would be like, well, finally, this seems interesting. Like, what are the practicalities of that? Do you wolf out together? Do you fight when you wolf out together? Do you just go hunting together? I'm interested in all of these questions. I'd like to see them be werewolves and having sex as werewolves. That would be crazy. You want to see that? The movie The Howling is for you. You know, that's got werewolf sex in it. I wanted to see Anthony Hopkins with a gypsy werewolf having sex. I've got a particular taste. Read my new, my new fiction. <laughs> <laughs> available on Amazon, self-published. It's called The Silence of the Wolves, I call it. And <laughs> The inspector shows up at Gwen's store, and she's surprised that she has a customer because no one's ever come in here before. Mrs. Werewolf, what is all this crap? He comes in, he shoots through a mirror thinking that Lawrence is on the other side of the mirror because he sees two legs there, and it turns out it's like a statue of the devil or something. I don't know. I, again, I was just like, let's wrap this movie up. <laughs> right. Who could care? We then see Gwen reading books on lycanthrope and gypsy lore. And I'm sure that that's completely not full of racist made up mumbo jumbo. And then we just see Lawrence getting out of town on foot, headed off to Werewolf Manor. We then see Gwen on a train. Then she's on a horse and she's looking for the gypsy lady Dolores that we saw earlier. Our inspector is on his way to werewolf manor and you're like thank god is this thing gonna wrap up gwen finally tracks down our fortune telling gypsy and tells her you know what's going on with lawrence and the gypsy lady basically says hey look man uh there's no cure you're gonna have to you know take matters into your own hand and she asks gwen if she will condemn lawrence or set him free right i mean none of this matters ultimately what she is saying is you can condemn him by not killing him or you can kill him and set him free because not killing him is not not condemning him Ugh, i just i don't have it in me to, to think <laughs> through this kind of gypsy logic right but again why is any of this here this is all like in in uh american werewolf in london this whole like i think someone uh, you know who cares about you has to be the one to kill you like all that makes sense because so much of the movie hinges on the relationship between david and the nurse in in the film and in this movie again you've just got the gold digger who was living at castle werewolf until the brother died and then immediately jeted to the other brother who was still alive and all of it just like none of it has any emotional weight to any of this and it's just so boring 
Why is it so boring? The inspector comes up with a plan with all of his friends about what the hell they're going to do. And we see Lawrence still traipsing across the countryside, which a question I have for you, Bo, between the time of the last wolf out session to where we are now, how much time has passed? Are we to assume it's been a day? Has it been a month because we need another full moon to come around? This is a question I had too, because assuming that it's every month that Lawrence becomes a wolfman then yeah so it's taken him roughly 28 days to get from london back home or he's been kind of keeping it on the down low and during this time aberline's been looking for him presumably and presumably emily blunt has been looking for a way to cure lawrence and uh god again i assume that it's been a month but uh, there is absolutely no way to tell in this movie it's just so sloppy lawrence finally makes his way back to werewolf manor and he sneaks into the place with the stealth of a 17 year old coming in after midnight we get a jump scare <laughs> for some reason because sing's corpse is hanging on the wall why don't ask it doesn't matter i guess anthony hopkins killed him maybe I don't know. Lawrence takes a key off of Singh's neck. And at this point, I was like, what is that key for? Have we even seen this key? He uses it to unlock a like a chest that has the shotgun silver bullets in it. That's what it's for. But they didn't set that up that I remember. Lawrence is creaking around the house and we see dad Anthony Hopkins hiding in the shadows. He gets the bullets, you know, that I just mentioned to put in his shotgun because he's, you know, like, I'm going to kill my dad. And then we see Gwen on horseback and she's racing to the house in the middle of the night when there's a full moon and there's a werewolf out. <laughs> right. Like, well, why would you do this? Also, she, we'll get to it in a second, but like when she shows up and she's like, oh, I've got to, you know, find my wolfman, you know, substitute brother that I'm trying to hook up with. And... As soon as she gets there and it's like her werewolf, she's like, fuck, and then runs off. <laughs> so hold that thought. We'll, we'll catch up with that joke in a moment. Lawrence is walking through the house. He's got his shotgun loaded with two giant silver bullet, you know, shotgun shells at the ready. The gun is cocked and he's just creeping around and he hears other noises. So he's like, you know, something's going on. We get a jump scare of Samson, the dog lurching from the shadows. But then off in the distance, we hear Anthony Hopkins playing the piano again. And there's this really nice shot where he's playing the piano and as his fingers touch the keys he leaves bloody prints behind and then the music stops and i like this moment again we yeah. we take a lot of punches at movies but there are certainly things in, in these films that are worth noting as being really well done and this was one that i was like that was cool i haven't seen that before. yeah it's a, a nice little moment um it is the best part of the end of this movie is that one shot the, the end of this is terrible <laughs> Lawrence enters the parlor and it should be noted that Anthony Hopkins is not at the piano when he walks in and he walks up to the fireplace and we see one of the inspector's men is now dead uh, sitting in the chair by the fire. But then somehow Anthony Hopkins is magically back at the piano and he begins to play again and his hair is combed really nice and neat. Uh, which is sort of a thing that he does before he turns into a wolf man. Anthony Hopkins stands up and he starts to talk to Lawrence. In his hand, he is walking with 
with the cane that was used in the original film of the Wolfman. It's got a, a handle that looks like a wolf, and he refers to Lawrence as the prodigal son, a callback to something that he referred to him as earlier in the film. And at this moment, Anthony Hopkins quotes from the Bible and asks Lawrence if he has Sing's silver bullets in his gun. During this monologue, Anthony Hopkins kind of winks at Lawrence as he notes his son's disadvantage in this standoff. It's an amazing delivery of dialogue from Anthony Hopkins. He is completely in control of this entire situation because what he knows that Lawrence doesn't know and that we at the, as the audience don't know is that the shotgun shells are blanks. He's removed the gunpowder. So they, they're not going to work if he tries to kill him. He also knows that the handle of the, the cane that he's carrying also is a, a knife. That was something I think that they brought up earlier or maybe not, but he's really just sort of completely in control of everything that's going on. Did I miss anything in this thoroughly boring ending of this film? No, no, no. So far, so good. At this point, the two of them begin to smack each other around a bit, beginning with Anthony Hopkins just wailing the shit out of his son with this wolf cane. And at this point, the full moon shows up and they both start to wolf out. And during their battle, um, the house catches on fire. They knock over a lantern or something to make it more atmospheric or more perilous as these two werewolves do battle. One thing I do want to note is that when Anthony Hopkins completely wolfs out, he rips off his shirt so that you can tell which werewolf is which. One of them has clothes on from the waist up and the other one doesn't because otherwise... You'd be totally confused. I think that the way this would be advertised on ESPN is a shirts versus skins and a father-son <laughs> werewolf duel to the death. If you saw that advertised. <laughs> I would be so excited. And then if I saw this, I would be like, oh, well, that wasn't very good. Gwen is racing towards the house. She's totally panicking at this point because up ahead, the mansion is burning and, you know, her fortune is literally <laughs> disappearing in front of her eyes. Back inside, Wolf Lawrence and Wolf Anthony Hopkins are just beating the shit out of each other. Wolf Anthony Hopkins, he ends up getting kicked into the fireplace. And then Wolf Lawrence um, lops off his head and then howls in triumph as we see a portrait of his slain mother uh, as the house burns down. I know we went through that really quick, but that's pretty much how it ends. It, that all happens within the space of about 120 seconds. <laughs> this is the big climax of our movie. First of all, it looks shitty. Did no one ever see the movie Wolf and take a page out of that book and realize that having werewolves jump at each other is about the dumbest way to end your werewolf movie? But nope. Um, so we're going to do that for a little bit. And then, like you said, uh, Anthony Hopkins gets kicked pro wrestling style into this fireplace. And that's kind of it. Like, and then Lawrence runs off into the night so we can wrap up the story with Gwen. Cause who gives a shit? Well, Gwen comes in and she's followed by uh, our inspector and the inspector pulls a gun out to shoot Lawrence. And I'm like, well, is he the hero of the movie? I don't know who cares. But then Gwen smacks his arm so that he doesn't kill the wolf man. At this point, like you noted earlier, Gwen's just like, yikes, he's a monster. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like the, the person that I came to save or whatever that I knew was a werewolf because I've been doing research presumably for a month about how to how to fix him or whatever. But as soon as I see him, I'm just like, hey, and gone. The inspector and Lawrence tussle for a bit. 
werewolf Lawrence chomps on the inspector to give him a good bite. We'll come back to that in a minute. Gwen uh, runs through the woods and as she's running, 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 the wolf man chases after her. And then she suddenly is surprised when her escape is blocked by this river that turns into a giant waterfall. Look, she would have heard that waterfall long before she got there. You're not just like running and it's deathly silent. And then suddenly, oh my gosh, there's a waterfall. Right. It's a, a prequel to a quiet place, apparently. <laughs> where she lives near a waterfall already. Or if she had been deaf, then it would have made sense. But sure. she isn't, and it doesn't. Gwen turns around, and what? who's there? The wolf, man. She has a gun in her hand, and she points it at him. And uh, it's the one that the inspector had earlier. And she's going to shoot Lawrence. Uh, so she points the gun, and she's going to kill him. But instead, she just reasons with Lawrence. And she goes into this speech where she says, Look at me. You know who I am, Lawrence. You know me. And th- this approach doesn't work. And it's even compounded even more so because I think she just kind of like spontaneously drops the gun or something. (laughs) Right. Gwen falls to the ground. Wolf Lawrence jumps on top of her and she gives it the old, it's Gwen, it's Gwen, look in my eyes. He doesn't kill her. At this point, some villagers that are working with the inspector show up. She reaches over, grabs the gun and shoots Lawrence through the heart. We get a last minute jump scare of Wolf Lawrence's arm reaching out and grabbing Gwen as he lays dying. And then he unwolfs and all the hair grows back inside of him. Gwen holds Lawrence as he's dying and he tells her it had to be this way. Thank you for killing me. She weeps uh, because she's totally broke now and she's probably going to end up being fed to hogs by a bunch of gangster loan sharks in London. Yeah, all the brothers are dead. She, like, she is fresh out of werewolves to try to suck into her Venus flytrap. Yeah, and the house is burning off in the distance. She can see the glow. It's like, I am truly fucked. Like... <laughs> Right. <laughs> she was like, you know, like her third tier where she was going to try to get pops in the sack, but nah, that ain't going to happen. The vigilantes show up with the inspector who's covered in his own blood. It's implied that the inspector is a werewolf now, kind of, sort of. Yeah, but I don't know. And then we get this voiceover from Gwen about how it's okay to kill a beast, but not a man. You know, but where does one end and one begin? And then there's this final wolf howl and roll credits. That's our movie. It's real dumb. Not only do we wrap things up at a lightning pace because the movie doesn't necessarily set anything up that needs to be paid off. So we don't have any kind of emotional resolution up to and including it's me, Lawrence, look into my eyes it's like he's known you for like two months you're the lady that was fucking his brother how does any of this matter the the idea that oh maybe aberline is uh, a werewolf now also who cares you know detective werewolf sounds like a much better movie and i'll watch it if you put it out but if you had detective werewolf getting back on the jack the ripper case i'm down for that but detective werewolf is literally fang face <laughs> you're right <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Mr. Werewolf. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Weren't they just doing Car 54? Is that what that was? Yeah. I, well, I mean, Faint Face is essentially Scooby Doo with a werewolf. All of those shows are basically Scooby Doo with a thing. Like, Scooby Doo was Die Hard. And then you came in and you're like, it's Jabberjaw. It's Scooby Doo, but with a shark. It's, you know, it was like Fang Face was Scooby-Doo with a werewolf. And it was, oh it was my speed, speed Buggy was Scooby-Doo, but with a talking car. <laughs> it was all the same thing. I Now I really want to see like a Jabberjaw v. Fang Face. 
Uh, see, I would rather be watching any of that stuff as opposed to the the Wolfman. Like this was only my second and third time watching it, and by the time I was watching it the last time, I was so angry at this movie. I don't know if it came through or not, Chad, but I think this movie is so frustratingly terrible that it doesn't know what it wants to be there are flashes of really good shit in it though like some of the shots with the light coming through the windows and the gothic look of it all i, I even think the music is pretty good in this movie uh like i said i think the the practical makeup on benicio del toro is pretty good the opening couple of minutes really set the stage nicely Anthony Hopkins. He is right on the cusp of being hammy in this movie, but somehow always manages to fall on the right side of it, where he's keeping it in check, but it's entertaining and it's a little bit big and all that stuff. Like, all that is good stuff, but it's just so buried by how terrible Benicio del Toro is in this movie, where he just does not have any presence at all on the screen, which isn't a problem with Benicio del Toro because he certainly can be very captivating in a movie like uh, Sicario is a recent example of a movie that he's fucking great in I don't think that anyone who is in this movie is a bad actor at all I think actor and actresses alike I think they're all excellent in their own right i just don't think in this movie it works the tone and atmosphere is part of the problem with this movie because it's not consistent it should either be a kind of a schlocky horror film which is sort of what the original or the the first few minutes of the movie are you know it's the like setting the stage for it to be this kind of throwback but with a little bit more gore and you could do kind of a tongue-in-cheek film using that as your stage but it just it wants to have the father-son stuff it wants to have this asylum stuff and the thing about the mother because the movie ends uh with the narration by emily blunt about once again the you know where does the beast end and the man begin stuff and it's like what does this have to do with anything this you brought it up like when they're trying to save him dolores is saving him at the gypsy camp <laughs> and then at the end of the movie when emily blunt repeats it and it's like what between now and then has a illuminated that theme in any way. Bo, how would you rank these films from your favorite to least favorite of the six that we reviewed this season? All right, I'm going to try to do this relatively quickly. I think, oh man, the worst is tough. Because coming off of recent viewings of The Wolfman, there is so much about this movie I just hate. But it's hard to argue that Memoirs of an Invisible Man isn't just a stinker cover to cover because that movie doesn't get anything right. What about The Mummy? That's pretty bad. But The Mummy has that airplane sequence. Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to go... This is probably wrong. I'm going to go Memoirs as the shittiest, then The Mummy, then Wolfman, then... Oh, boy. I mean, all three of those are just stinkers. Um, Then I think think hold on i'm trying I'm, I'm trying to do this in a way that makes some kind of sense to me because they're so bad so all right invisible man is the worst wolfman second worst then mummy then frankenstein the bride and i think Mm, maybe Dracula is my favorite of all of these, as flawed as it is. I'm going to go The Bride, Frankenstein, Dracula. 
You're saying the bride is the worst? No, I'm sorry, top to bottom. Number okay. one, sorry, no, no, I'm going The Bride, Frankenstein. And the reason I put Frankenstein number two is that I've read that novel so many times. And I think that De Niro's performance is really, really good in that. Following that, Dracula, The Mummy, The Wolf Man, and then uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man is my bottom. I think we can agree that Memoirs, uh, basically our bottom three is the same. <laughs> that brings us to a close of this season of pick six movies uh we as always are going to take a few weeks off and then we will come back again for the holiday season where we are bringing a new season that we are lovingly referring to as the war on christmas movies (laughs) yeah like uh, horror movies are kind of my jam so i've really enjoyed doing this season because even though we're talking about not great horror films we're still doing movies that i kind of have i'm rooting for right when we come to christmas movies i don't like christmas as a holiday and i certainly don't like christmas movies i know and the ones that we've selected which i will not give away but we've selected a lineup of movies that are shitty even by christmas movie standards the six movies that we've selected are quite possibly six of the most popular christmas movies of all time (laughs) movies people are going to be angry at us for hating why would you do this right i watch this every year with my family what is wrong with you people (laughs) and we're gonna say you are listeners you're not wrong you're just not right so come back join us again here in a few weeks we've got a little research we've got some work we got to do we're gonna pull all this together but we will be delivering you six holiday themed movies uh over the uh starting around thanksgiving and and through the christmas time period so again as always like rate review share with your friends send us a note let us know your thoughts um thank you so much uh we hope you have a a safe and happy halloween and uh bo any final parting thoughts no happy halloween everybody go watch yourself some scary movies (laughs) fantastic we will see you in a few weeks